This is Tori. And this is Jasmine. And we're third year medical students at Western U Comp Northwest in Oregon. And this is Book Biopsy, the podcast that biopsies a book each month and interprets it through the lens of the medical student experience. Each month, we will read a new book and use it to think through the challenges of being a student doctor on rotations. Feel free to read along beforehand or just take it in with us. This month, we'll be talking about Do You Believe in Magic? Vitamins, Supplements, and All Things Natural, A Look Behind the Curtain by Dr. Paul Offit. Dr. Paul Offit is a pediatrician and infectious disease doctor, co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine, and he's also an acclaimed author of this book and many more about medicine and society today. So this book in particular is about acupuncture, homeopathy, naturopathy, and other alternative medicines. And he goes through each and he discusses the harms and efficacies of each practice. And he goes through the whole industry of naturopathic medicine, why it's so big, why it's so popular, and why people buy into it so hard. So are you ready, Tori? Let's do a biopsy. Let's start by talking about what is alternative medicine? Offit has this great quote in the book. The truth is there's no such thing as conventional or alternative or complementary or integrative or holistic medicine. There's only medicine that works and medicine that doesn't. And the best way to sort it out is by carefully evaluating scientific studies. So Offit is really um, pulling apart this false dichotomy here of alternative medicine and modern medicine, these two distinct groups, and saying it's all medicine, it's just what works and doesn't. So today, let's start by talking about what the appeal is of the so-called alternative medicine side of this. Jasmine, what do you think of alternative medicine and why are people so gravitating towards it? I think that Dr. Offit does a great job in his book with this particular quote here. Mainstream doctors are perceived as uncaring, dictatorial, and offering unnatural remedies with intolerable side effects. While alternative medicine has a more personalized feel, they feel more like a person than a number when they come to see an alternative medicine person because they have the charisma. They're not that cold, uncaring doctor that you see in traditional media. It seems like alternative medicine allows the patient to take a bit more ownership over their health and empowers the patient to feel like they're in control of what's going on in their body in the context of a healthcare system in modern medicine where patients can often feel little or no control. So part of this appeal is that you don't need an MD, DO, PhD to figure out what's wrong with you and help yourself, but that you can do these things on your own. Definitely. Like you can go and if you have an upset stomach, you can go get ginger root on your own and not have to rely on expensive medical therapies for curing yourself. I can understand how it's sometimes very isolating um, to go to a doctor's office because there is a medical jargon sometimes spoken. Um, There is a a hierarchy in medicine and knowledge that is only known to people who have been in school for years and years and years and the depth of understanding that patients just won't have without that training. I see how it could be um, disempowering to just be told what to do rather than truly understand what's going on and be able to take control over your own own self-care, which really brings to light why it's so important to communicate well with your patients. Yeah, and it's so much more accessible to the public when I'm telling someone, oh, you need to take a Torvastatin um, for your cholesterol. People don't really know what that is. But if you say, I'm going to take fish oil for my cholesterol, most everyone will know what that means. Yeah, I think, too, that it's it can be really frustrating as a patient and, and also as a professional in medicine to have such rapidly changing ideas in medicine. So 
because of the scientific method and research, what is the gold standard one day can be something else the next day. Whereas alternative medicine presents a stable and continuous idea that is certain, reassuring, and has historical implications. Yeah, they've been using these products for hundreds, even thousands of years. So why would we use them if they didn't work or have some benefit? Is kind of the argument behind it right. there. I thought it was so um, interesting, though. I, it was really ironic that while alternative therapies are really embraced in resource-rich countries like the United States, the resource-poor countries where these ideas originally from places like uh, mainland China, they often reject these alternative therapies. And he said that in mainland China, only 18% of the population relies on alternative medicine. Acupuncture, traditional Chinese um, medicine, is almost solely embraced by the rural poor. There's something about this mystical, ancient, holy cultural knowledge that is gained through adopting ancient medicine, alternative medicine approaches. Kind of like you are buying into a deeper tradition that is bigger than yourself. Mm -hmm. I think it's also, in a way, exoticizing the foreign by us in America adopting ancient Chinese, ancient Indian practices and westernizing them and, and branding them as our alternative medicine. So branching off your idea of exoticizing the foreign, I do think it is important for people, especially in this current climate, to be able to practice their heritage and their culture. My mom, she's from Iran, and she practices as a physician in a small rural town, which does make it harder for people who are different to practice their culture. And this comes to play a lot in her practice because... Her town is near an Indian reservation, and some of her patients are Native American. One story she told me that I absolutely loved was about um, this Native American who came to her because they wanted to practice um, the sweat lodge, but their heart condition would cause them to pass out every time they tried. So she worked with them to devise a combination of blood pressure medications and limiting the time in the sweat lodge so they could stay healthy but still practice their culture. I think this is a powerful story because I believe our whole role as physicians is to help our patients live the lives they want to live. And practicing their culture is, is one way that they stay healthy, stay mentally healthy and connect with their past and their current situation in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there is a lot of wisdom there in looking to combine cultural and spiritual and medical beliefs into practice. And it reminds me of, in the book, the doctor who worked in Guinea and was in the town with a witch doctor and they basically worked out a system where the witch doctor would be kind of like the first line of defense or the first contact for patients and at that point could determine okay this person really needs modern medicine right now or this person just needs a little bit of comforting um, or this person's thing is going to go away in a few days and it's going to be fine so the last two, the witch doctor would take care of it. And I'm, I'm using the words that, that are used in the book. And the first problem would be referred right to the hospital, to the medicine, um, the modern medicine, and taken care of appropriately. So there's this triaging process um, that was able to integrate beliefs with appropriate medical yeah, care. I really enjoyed that part of the book. I'm having a hard time when I speak in saying the word modern medicine and alternative medicine. So I want to put an, a disclaimer on it that these are the ways that these ideas are labeled in the book. And it's a way for us to talk about it. I'm not saying that modern means better or alternative means worse. These are just the thought groups that we've put these categories into.
going to say another appeal of the alternative medicine is the personalities in it, the charisma and the almost cult-like following we have of some of these celebrities who bring forth these ideas of alternative Mm -hmm. medicine. You have Suzanne Summers, who is the face of menopause and how to remain (laughs) young (laughs) even in the face of menopause. She got really into estrogen therapy, which, yes, will stop the symptoms of menopause, but also greatly increases the risk of breast cancer and other cancers that are stimulated by excess estrogen in the body so there's dangers behind these medicines yeah a modern celebrity you might say who's influencing medicines are being taken up by society would be Brump who as we know has had many theories of how to prevent our COVID-19 infection and how to cure it in quotations Um, whether it's injecting bleach or taking hydroxychloroquine or vitamin C and zinc and just putting it out there without any scientific evidence as um, ways to cure, treat, prevent this deadly illness, which we know can be incredibly harmful. No, I agree. And it's not only celebrities that are putting these ideas out there. Mm -hmm. What you're talking about makes me think of Dr. Oz. (laughs) who um, is definitely a bit of a cult of personality. He is a celebrity doctor on TV who really embraces alternative medicine therapies. And viewers really listen to what he has to say because not only does he have the title of doctor, but he's also has the platform of national television. Some of this can be really dangerous in my opinion He doesn't have a very critical outlook in what he presents on television. It seems like he presents everything and allows the viewers to make up their mind. And it's a great thing to to want to um, empower the patient and give them that autonomy. But at the same time, it's deceiving the patient as well by putting out all of this information and not telling which is credible, which is not and using your expertise to guide the viewers through this interpretation. He just kind of puts it all out there and says, well, if it works for you, it doesn't. If it doesn't work for you, it doesn't. But in the meantime, people are spending thousands of dollars on supplements, on alternative medicine, and foregoing potentially life-saving treatments to try out these other therapies. So it's not harmless. It can actually be pretty harmful. And one of the points that Dr. Offit makes in his book is people are drawn towards alternative medicine because they don't think that there is an agenda behind it. They think, oh, this is natural. This person who is selling me these products wants me to be healthier. One of the quotes he uses is from Michael Spector. And the quote is, why do we hate big pharma, but leap into the arms of big placebo? People Mm. think when they go to doctors, they're just giving money to these drug companies. But really it is much more profitable to be in alternative medicine it sure is profitable for Gwyneth Paltrow (laughs) with goop (laughs) um yeah not much okay there's a lot to say there (laughs) but I think it can almost be summed up by this one product that she sells on her website goop which is a jade egg have you heard of this no I have not (laughs) Well, I can't wait to tell you about it. It's a jade egg that you put in your vagina. What? And according to Goop, it can solve all your problems. So um, not only menstrual issues, but also hormonal issues. It can help you get in touch with your inner self, um, which, you know, I won't won't discredit that claim. That might be true. Um, But... It's a super expensive jade egg you put up there, and it's supposed to cure you. Just think about that. I can't stop thinking about that now. <laughs> that is such Sorry, a listeners, for that mental image. Yeah. I wonder how she even came up with that. That's incredible. It's impressive. I mean, her team definitely has an imagination, unless they're just copying it from other cultures, which I have a feeling they may be. But anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Don't sue us, Scoop. <laughs> Please, Goop, have mercy upon us. 
Well, anyway, I think part of the appeal of alternative medicine is the belief that natural part products are safer than conventional therapies. Pharmaceuticals are considered dangerous. Some of that is true, but half of the pharmaceuticals we have come from plants. So it, the vitamin and supplement industry have done a really great job creating this false dichotomy between natural products on one side and drugs, synthetic drugs on the other hand. And stating that drugs are more dangerous than natural therapies. But there is some nuance to that, right? Things that are natural can be poisonous and things that are synthetic can be healing. So um, think of antibiotics. Antibiotics were discovered to be a byproduct made by fungus. And fungus is very natural, but antibiotics um, many perceive as dangerous now. Um, And there is some credence to that, of course, but um, that's just one example. Whereas vaccines and artificial hips are man-made. So this is really a false dichotomy here, pitting the natural against the synthetic and stating that one is good and one is bad. That's really a marketing ploy that has been very successful on the part of the vitamin and supplement industry. And I think we are very seduced as a culture by terms like natural, organic, antioxidant. These are often marketing terms and unregulated marketing terms that lead us to buy a product because we believe it is good for our bodies. Yeah, that kind of leads us into what you were talking about earlier with the quote, we call alternative medicines that work medicine because these alternative medicines, such as willow leaves, have been tested rigorously through the scientific method. And now we can use this as aspirin and we know what it does. We know what's in it when we're taking it. But kind of how you mentioned also We don't really know what's in these supplements that we get from naturopaths because they are not regulated by the FDA. There was a huge break between the FDA regulating naturopathic medicines because these these therapies are so expensive to test. They created their own agency, the National Health Federation, which protects the financial interests of the alternative medicine industry. So these medicines that we get from naturopaths do not have to be tested through rigorous clinical trials. These are just things that they kind of market to you and have not been tested. And also they don't necessarily have to be what they're labeled as. Like if you go to the store and purchase brownie mix, that brownie mix has to have inside it what's on the label. But if you go to a natural health food store and purchase a supplement that has certain, um, maybe like cayenne pepper in there for metabolism boosting, and it's a little pill, and you go and you look at the ingredients inside of it, that's not necessarily what's actually in there. It doesn't have to match because it's not regulated by the FDA. And the studies that have been done on these alternative medicines. But the ones that were tested either showed no benefit to taking it or it was actually harmful to take it. But these studies are all in peer-reviewed journals, which are often behind a paywall. So the only way you would know that they didn't work is to purchase this journal. Yeah, that's really an issue of access and the siloing of medical knowledge, which is why patients come to the doctor with research they've done on Google. They don't have other resources necessarily to be able to weed out what's peer-reviewed and what's not. It's really hard to tell what kind of studies are credible and are not because things look really good sometimes 
And then you do a little bit deeper digging and you realize that the study was funded by the pharmaceutical company selling it or the vitamin company selling whatever it is. So it's really hard to tease apart and you do need a bit of scientific background to be able to tease it apart, which is why people who relay this information in a consumer-friendly way, such as Dr. Oz, are so popular because they talk to the people and try to give them answers, even if those answers are not critically assessed. Yeah, exactly. So this kind of relates to what's been going on for me on rotations, um, patients bringing in supplements and asking the doctor if these are going to help them with whatever condition and asking the doctor to evaluate the legitimacy of the brand, the the product. Um, and it's so difficult because when you look at these products, there's 50 different ingredients at least. <laughs> and yeah, it, I, I don't know what ingredients five through 50 are. And there's hardly any research on the first few ingredients. So it's really hard to put a stamp of approval on supplements like this. What do you think the role of the physician is with patients bringing in supplements and asking for vitamins and things? I think the role of the physician here is to is almost as like a teacher in this situation. For example, when I was on my endocrinology rotation, there was a patient who was coming in and one of her symptoms was pain. And she was wondering if a certain homeopathic remedy would help her with her pain. And the physician walked her through exactly what homeopathy is, because a lot of people don't know that it was homeopathy was created by a man named Samuel <laughs> Hanneman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I honestly don't know how to say that. But his his theory was that disease such as fever could be treated by using a, a medicine that causes the same symptom as the disease. And so what he did was he took that medicine, put it in water, and just diluted it and diluted it and diluted it until there was essentially nothing left anymore of that. And the theory is the water would remember what medicine used to be there, and that would help fight the fever. And so the endocrinologist was explaining this to her, and she honestly had no idea that when she was purchasing this little vial of water that that's what she was purchasing, basically nothing. So it, it is hard to say um, what the role exactly of the physician is because we aren't dictators who control every aspect of our patients' lives. We are just there to provide the information in a way that our patients can understand it and we can give them our opinion, but we really can't control what they choose to do. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's good when patients bring you questions about this stuff. It shows that they have a critical eye and they're seeking your help in figuring out how to treat their illness. Mm-hmm. I think the role for the physician is to try your best to figure out what's in the supplement. And it doesn't mean you have to research every little thing, but try to look up what this patient is asking about. Um, And if you can't endorse something, then say that. Say, I don't know what this does. There hasn't been good research to support the efficacy of this. Give the patient the truth, but allow them to make their own decision. Yeah, I agree completely with that. So I think this is a good transition point. There was a quote that Dr. Offit uses from Michael Spector, who said, Why do we hate Big Pharma, but leap into the arms of Big Placebo? Because there's this miscommunication out there that when we go to a doctor and get a pharmaceutical pill, we're just dumping money into these pharmaceutical companies who are making millions of dollars off of us. Whereas if you go with um, a naturopathic remedy, that's not, they're not there to make money off of you. They're there to help you get better. But that is a total farce. 
the costs of alternative medicine can be extremely high. The example that he uses in the book is uh, Steve McQueen, who suffered from cancer. He was a really big actor back in the day. And he, instead of going with conventional therapies that would have probably saved his life, he decided to go with alternative medicine. And he was doing massages, megavitamins, shampoos, chiropractic adjustments, sheep embryo shots, enzyme implants twice daily, coffee enemas, and which sounds super pleasant. <laughs> and all of this kind of equated to, in our money today, $80,000 a month. So someone was getting rich off of him. And eventually when these things clearly weren't working, he was getting sicker and sicker. He turned back to modern medicine and by then it was too late. His cancer had progressed too far. The surgery that would have saved his life was no longer an option. So he unfortunately ended up passing away from his disease. It's so hard to imagine that there are people out there who think, who, who are so vulnerable, who are dying of cancer and there are people who want to take advantage of them and make money off of them. You wouldn't imagine there's people like that out there. And maybe these people do think that their remedies are helping. And it's not just money for them. But another quote that was really good was, The controlled clinical trial is an attempt to avoid being taken in by the conspiracy of goodwill. So even though these practitioners believe that what they're doing is helping, one way that you can kind of get, get rid of the fluff is saying, hey, this was a con clinically controlled trial. This surgery will help you live versus we don't know if, I mean, we pretty much know that coffee evidence are not going to cure your cancer. So I think uh, modern medicine can feel inaccessible at times and almost magical the way that alternative medicine does um, to people who are not steeped in that knowledge and understanding of the scientific process. I think modern medicine appears magical to people who are not trained in biomedical sciences. And it's really hard to parse out why an alternative therapy that appears magical works or doesn't work versus biomedical therapy also appearing magical because it is so nuanced and out of the scope of practice of many people. For example, if we compare the character Brzezinski in the book, who discovered, if you will, anti-neoplastins, which were these cancer-fighting substances that a scientist discovered, but he lost all credibility after doing the research showing there was no significance and continuing to promote these substances. His theory was that patients with renal failure retain substances in their body. They're not able to excrete because of that renal failure and that these substances prevent them from getting cancer. So if we can isolate these substances and give them to people, then we can cure cancer. It has a logical thought process, even though I don't quite understand it. I can get behind the logic, sort of. And then if you think about a biomedical therapy that we use today, like Herceptin, which is a HER2 positive breast cancer drug, targets the products of oncogenes. I mean, what I just said is basically gibberish to someone not steeped in this field who hasn't studied that mechanism or understands that way. One or the other could be true, and it's really hard to tease out which is. So you really have to place your faith in someone at some point without going through medical school yourself. So how do you decide as a patient who to believe and who not to? Yeah, it's our, it's our role to be able to synthesize these studies and these confusing sentences full of jargon, be able to synthesize that and put it in a form that our patients can understand. Right. Yeah, it's not to say that biomedicine is blameless or uncorrupted or, or completely filled with truth, but I think the goal is to 
always be evaluating the truth and and doing the work of the research and the reading and understanding to progress towards a better understanding of what helps patients every day. And I think a hundred years from now, people will look back at some of the practices we have now and think that we were all <laughs> charlatans and... But that, but you're totally right. That's what distinguishes medicine from alternative medicine is we're constantly mm. testing and constantly trying to learn more about these therapies that we're using, whereas alternative medicine is just kind of, this is the thing, this is what we're going to give you, but they're not striving to learn more. They're not striving to test things and see if things actually work. In our careers as future doctors to not be complacent with the knowledge we have now Um, because the knowledge we come into our medical training with is not the same best practice one year, two year, 10 years, 50 years from now. It's always changing Um, and that's for the better and things can go back and forth but we're trying our best and we're using our expertise and our practice ourselves combined with the literature and the research and recommendations of others in our fields to come to that understanding and then individualize it for the patient. Yeah, and it can be frustrating. Like, for example, in medical school alone, in the two years where we were in our uh, preclinical years, the (laughs) guidelines for blood pressure changed twice. And we had to re-memorize different values for blood pressure i mean it's kind of like how we lost pluto back in the day how frustrating was that (laughs) (laughs) oh is pluto back now no and the world is still not flat i was wondering I think now would be a really good time to talk about vitamins. One of the big vitamins that we're all we all get excited about is vitamin C. And there's actually a reason for that. It started with a man named Linus Pauling, who was born in Portland, Oregon, here in good old Oregon, and actually attended OSU. At 30 years old, he won the Nobel Prize because he discovered that there is uh, something in between ionic and covalent bonds. And there's actual electron sharing that's happening here. And apparently it revolutionized the field of chemistry, even though I don't really even understand the words I just said. (laughs) Um, (laughs) He was also a peace advocate. He opposed the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. He also refused to work on the Manhattan Project. And he also refused Joseph McCarthy's loyalty oath during the communism scare. So he, by all means, is a man who should be respected in his field. Mm -hmm. A scientist, a peace advocate. But then he kind of goes off the rails a little bit. (laughs) Because he got on to the vitamin C train. He believed with his whole heart that vitamin C could cure the common cold and flu. And he published a paper on it. And when this paper was published, drugstores were running out of vitamin C. People were buying it up so fast. One of the first studies that was done to confirm his research, they studied 180 colds, and there was absolutely no indication that vitamin C had any effect on the severity or duration of a cold. Hmm. Which surprised me, because I have bought into this idea that vitamin C works. Mm -hmm. But apparently the studies show that it, it doesn't. And after this happened, you would think someone with a scientific mind who respects the scientific process would kind of let it go and be like, okay, I was proven wrong. Mm -hmm. Instead, he doubles down, taking it further, saying it could prevent not only colds, but cancer. Oh, Linus. This became such a huge thing that they actually had to do a study in cancer patients on the therapeutic benefit of high-dose vitamin C. And then surprise, surprise, this showed there was no benefit to vitamin C in cancer uh, treatment success. And still, instead of letting go, (laughs) he said, 
vitamin C, vitamin A, and vitamin E together could cure any disease oh boy. ever known to man. I think this story is fascinating because not only is this still a highly held belief in our society that vitamin C cures colds, mm-hmm. but this was a man who was a scientist yeah. who was held in esteem. He's won prestigious awards. He has acclaimed work. How did he end up being so obsessed with this? Yeah. Yeah, why couldn't he let it go? It it makes me think this is a really successful man who's not used to being wrong, maybe. Or there's something we're not getting from this story. It just doesn't really make sense. Exactly. And it seemed to be a theme with the scientists in this book, too, who really would latch on to these preposterous treatments and just refused to let go, even though the evidence was screaming at them. Yeah. This is nothing. Yeah. I mean, it's really disappointing to hear as just a person who gets colds, a human, (laughs) that there isn't this easier fix for getting rid of them or preventing them. Vitamin C, it's seemingly benign, but if something doesn't work, Like, that's kind of one thing. But if something actually has the potential to cause harm, I think that's something completely different. For example, Dr. Offit talks about the harms of vitamins. And at first I was, what? The harms of vitamins? Like, vitamins are okay, right? But no, they can actually harm you and harm you in megadoses, but also harm you through what is in the supplement itself. As we've talked about earlier, the vitamin and supplement industries are really unregulated by the FDA. So it's anyone's guess what is the filler in these vitamins. And really interestingly, in 2004, researchers at Harvard Medical School tested Ayurvedic remedies that they obtained from local shops in Boston and found out that 20% of them contained potentially harmful levels of lead, mercury and arsenic and that between 1978 and 2004 herbal medicines caused 55 cases of severe or fatal heavy metal poisoning while these vitamins and supplements are using up your money potentially not working they could also be causing you harm and there's really no way to know because they are unregulated And I hear about new vitamins all the time. If you open your Instagram feed, it's just, I'm taking my vitamins. Like, take these gummies. They'll make, and you go into Sephora or you go into um, any of these beauty stores, and they're actually selling vitamins to you for your nails, hair, skin. And okay, vitamin O. What the hell? It's salt water enhanced with oxygen, aka vitamin O marketed. It's salt water. This was marketed um, to help you with everything, increase vitality through increased oxygen absorption. But here's the thing, people, we don't have gills. So not gonna help. Um, another one I've come across just this week is vitamin F. Vitamin F, more like vitamin fake. Looked it up and it's supposed to be fats. So these different fatty acids that are good for your skin, but it's really just a moisturizer, like a lipid barrier. Okay, you're just keeping in moisture. Anyway, fun tidbit. uh, The dermatologist I was rotating with, he used to say that if you have a product and it has French on it and it's not from France, it's bougie. It's it's a uh, it's a gimmick. So just be aware. I thought that was really interesting. And I looked. I went home and I looked at like all my products, and more than half of them had French on them. So I am <laughs> I'm quite the victim to sales, especially some skincare products. I am not immune to that. Anyway, I think we know that there are times when vitamins do work. One of which is when you are deficient in a vitamin and you need that. Or um, also, I've been rotating in dermatology and vitamins are recommended from time to time for certain skin conditions. One of the most exciting substances in dermatology right now is vitamin A, um, which in the form of retinol is a skincare product, um, either 
taken orally, which is Accutane, or in a cream, and that has all these wonderful benefits for your skin, and that is statistically significant. It does really have cool effects on your skin. When I was in endocrinology, we talked about osteoporosis and taking vitamin D and calcium to promote bone growth, or at least maintaining bone mass. And it turned out the study showed that it actually doesn't really do much for you to take these supplements, and it was actually better to obtain them through your diet. Uh, but the one thing that actually worked was weight-bearing exercise. That's really interesting, yeah, because you always hear postmenopausal women should take vitamin D and calcium to protect their bones. But um, So that's, yeah. that's good to know. Another vitamin that we know has real implications on health is folate in preventing neural tube defect in the fetus. And um, for people like us who are plant-based, B12 is crucial. It's something we can't get um, non-animal sources. So that's a supplement that we have to take. Fish oil is an interesting supplement to think about. It has gotten a lot of hype in the last decade for its help with boosting HDL or good cholesterol and lowering bad cholesterol. And it doesn't really hold up through research. Uh, you really would have to take really high doses of that for it to actually improve your cholesterol. And it's not statistically significant if you compare it to other cholesterol lowering agents. One medication that is derived from a fish oil substance that has been shown to work is vasipa. And vasipa is is a type of omega-3 fatty acid that can lower your triglycerols. So it's kind of a derivative of that um, fish oil. So I'm sure we'll learn more and more about these supplements and which work and which don't. There's not a lot of good evidence to be shelling out money every month for things like multivitamins and other supplements that don't have a clear indication. If you have a good diet, and most Americans maybe not a good diet, but they have a diet and they're not lacking uh, nutrients typically, do quite well without having supplements. So Jasmine, I think my favorite chapter in this book is about the placebo effect. It really brought it all together for me. Um, so the placebo effect, what is it? Is it real? It is. Spoilers. <laughs> um, two reasons. One of them is a psychological effect that happens when you take an inert substance but believe it is a treatment that will help you. It actually ends up helping you. And another is that they, they, they that this is an actual physiological effect that happens. People don't just believe they have less pain when they take a placebo. They actually have less pain. And why is this? Endorphins, those beautiful endogenous chemicals that bind morphine receptors and are released in response to pain, spicy foods, exercise, excitement, and orgasms. So... That's why placebos work in essence for chronic pain. When you believe that something is helping you, endorphins are released, they bind the morphine receptor, and you have an actual measured decrease in pain. Why is this working? And Dr. Offit talks about how a lot of times the effect of the placebo is the ritual that surrounds a positive therapeutic interaction, meaning a comforting, caring physician treating a patient and delivering that therapeutic treatment. It was interesting. He found in the book that um, through past studies have shown that pills actually work better if you say these pills will help to patients than if you were to say I don't know if these pills will help. And that's because there is some connection between the mind and the body and that it actually manifests into reality. It's so interesting that believing something can actually impact your physiological experience. 
And better yet, we learn in this book that all doctors have placebo effect on their patients. I love this quote by J.N. Blah. (laughs) (laughs) J.N. Blah. Sorry, Blah. Sorry, J.N. Anyway, the doctor who fails to have a placebo effect on his patients should become a pathologist. It's basically saying that you and your presence are healing in itself. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. That even if you... You have something that's uncurable, you can still help that patient and bring them some healing. I think that's beautiful. I think so, too. And I really got interested in learning about alternative treatments um, and why they do or don't work. One of those discussed in the book is acupuncture, something I've always been very intrigued by. It's an ancient Chinese remedy wherein... Needles are placed through meridians or lines that are based off of the understanding of the rivers in China. And pain relief is brought about by releasing restrictions in those lines. There was a study done with retractable needles versus putting needles into the patient, and it actually made no difference. What was really helping patients is the part where they're relaxing for 30 minutes and they're having a therapeutic um, relationship with someone who is treating them. But unfortunately with acupuncture, it's not always harmless. He talked about how you can get infections, punctured lungs, and then needles themselves carry risk transferring HIV, hepatitis. So it made me skeptical in a way of acupuncture. But just like any of these therapies, acupuncture provides that placebo response. That is the person who goes in and relaxes for 30 minutes, has a caring alliance with with a practitioner and takes that time for themselves, comes out feeling better. And that's really, that's okay. As long as I think that that person is not shelling out lots and lots of money feeling like there's any harm going on. That is fascinating. You know, kind of along the same vein, I was reading this article where there was this study done on women physicians. And there is a huge problem where male physicians will often make more money than female physicians Mm -hmm. for doing the exact same job. And one of the ideas behind it is women physicians will... Uh, spend more time with their patients and help their patients by spending more time with them, talking with them, getting to know Mm -hmm. them, making them feel more comfortable. And because they're taking up more time with their patients, they're seeing less patients. And that is contributing to the wage gap. But their time isn't valueless. But it's hard to find a diagnosis billing code for helped emotionally support patient, even though that is very much part of our jobs. So there is value in this kind of intangible aspect that can't be put into necessarily like a diagnosis code. Yeah, Exactly, yes. I can say that sometimes I'm a sucker for wanting to try new things and always... um, learn. So last weekend I got a massage and they asked me if I wanted to do cupping and I'd never done that before. So I was like, sure, it won't hurt. Um, it hurt. Okay. And the, afterwards I was like, oh, I feel better because the pain stopped because he stopped pulling on my skin. And I think that's part of it. Some of these treatments, you just feel better when it's done. It's kind of a stressful ex- experience. And afterwards, some endorphins are released, some relief is experienced, and that translates into actual improvement in the condition. I wonder with cupping, because I had a I had a similar experience when I was getting a massage and I got I they offered to do it, give me a sample for free. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ooh, like Michael Phelps did cupping to train for the Olympics. Well, so clearly I should oh. use this to sit. For my training, sitting at a computer looking. I don't know. I think mine helped. <laughs> Are you being sponsored by Big Cupping? <laughs> you know it. Is it actually ethical to deceive a patient 
with a placebo effect to say this will work when you're not sure it's going to work or to um, reassure them when you're not 100% sure it's going to get better. And that question was actually addressed. The conclusion that was come to in the book is that it is ethical to deceive patients when things are low risk, low cost, and low burden. And deceive is a pretty strong term, but that's what we're kind of using to say placebo here. So it is okay to say to a patient this this drug will work, even if there's a 5% chance it won't. What do you think about that? I think I agree. I don't think it is deception. I think it's just part of medicine. For example, psychiatric drugs. Well, I actually had a patient who took citalopram and it helped them. They got better. Whereas another patient took citalopram and it did nothing for her depression. So I don't think it is deception when you say you hand something to someone and say, hey, this pill will make things better for you. And Mm -hmm. if it doesn't, we will try something else. It sounds like you can actually be causing harm by placing that doubt in the patient. If you were to say, eh, this might work, we'll see. Um, If it is a treatment that has shown to have efficacy in research, you should present confidence and awareness to that patient. I mean, it's, you have to do informed consent, obviously, and present the pluses and minuses of the drug and all of that, but conveying that with a sense of hope it's in itself a placebo effect. And I don't think that's deception. I think that's hope. I thought the most interesting part of this whole thing about placebos is that your body can learn the placebo effect. It's really interesting, okay? So you can have a learned allergy. So people learn to make allergic responses to flowers. And then when presented with fake flowers, they have this learned response to release histamine. Conditioning, amazing. And also, really embarrassing if you have a fake flower immune response. (laughs) Totally insane. The body is amazing. The mind is amazing. The connection between the two, really interesting. What does this mean? This means that there is something to be said for the placebo and that it has a role in our society and our, our healthcare system, and it can be really beneficial. The placebo satisfies our craving for visible mechanisms, answers, and quick solutions. You take this pill, you feel better. You believe it makes you feel better and you actually do feel better. This happens all the time with things like glucosamine and glundroitin sulfate for chronic joint pain. It's never been shown to be work better than placebo in studies, but it doesn't cause harm. And it could mean that that patient avoids taking chronic pain meds that could cause serious side effects. So Really, why not try it? If you can afford to take those supplements and you believe they will work, they may actually work for you for that reason, the placebo effect. But there's a big difference between placebo and what Dr. Offit calls quackery. And quackery crosses the line. So this is how Offit makes this distinction. I think this is really helpful. Placebo, harmless, can help, fine. Quackery, number one, you can cross the line by recommending against conventional therapies that are helpful. For example, Joey Hofbauer's story, he was this boy who had Hodgkin's lymphoma. His parents uh, decided against conventional medical treatment and treated him with Laetrile from apricot pits. He ended up dying from cancer because they did not get the conventional treatment in time. Another example of this would be uh, those who recommend against pasteurizing milk. Another example, of course, would be those who don't believe in vaccines. So recommending against conventional therapies that can truly save someone is a great harm. And that's one of those reasons he gives. So number two, number two, by promoting potentially harmful theories without adequate warning. Number three, by draining patients' bank accounts. Number four, by promoting magical thinking encouraging um, scientific illiteracy, or beyond that, scientific denialism, which can have a corrosive effect on patients' perception of disease, leaving them susceptible to the worst kinds of quackery. I think this is a really helpful way of thinking about what is helpful, what is harmful, and where to draw that line when we're talking about unproven modalities of healing. I agree. I feel like 
those four tenets, much like the four tenets of osteopathy, <laughs> are, are a good way to distinguish between quackery and the placebo effect. talk a little bit about how we want to go forward and how we want to integrate alternative medicine into our practices, how we think they can coexist. Is there a place? I think I'm going to stick more to traditional medicine at this point. And if my patients come to me with alternative therapies, I want to use my skills as a scientist as a medical professional to look into these, see if they're harmful. And if they're not, then um, just tell them what I think. Like, hey, this has not been shown to work, but if you want to move forward with this therapy, you can. And just kind of stay in the role as educator. Yeah, I think that's a really um, good way to approach it. This is a really tough discussion. I'm someone who does yoga and really loves to stay active, eat a healthy diet. I'm always reading about the newest things out there. Um, And it's really easy to get sucked into new and exciting popular beliefs. It's harder to stay on top of the literature and weed through the studies and really work to understand the science behind all of this. But I think that's the work we have to do as future physicians Um, It is our job to take that on for our patients and be there to help them sort through the truth of it. I personally have found benefit in so-called alternative medicine. Just an anecdote, when I was really young, I used to have chronic stomach issues, like a week-long episode every month where I would be really sick, um, like vomiting and nauseous for a few days and then out of school for that week. And my doctor didn't know what was going on with me. And it was really frustrating, especially for my parents. And my parents ended up having a conversation with someone at church and they recommended liquid aloe vera. And believe it or not, I took liquid aloe vera. And seriously, I haven't had an episode since that day. It actually reminds me of when I was working in the lab. I worked in a Uh, medical biology lab where people would send us samples and we would find out what bacteria was in there and give them susceptibilities so they know what antibiotic to use. And we actually had someone call us and ask if we could run a susceptibility for group B strep. And group B strep is a bacteria that lives in women's vaginas and if you give birth and you have group B strep in there it can have devastating effects on the baby so this person wanted us to run a susceptibility on garlic which is not an FDA approved mm-hmm. treatment for group B strep and so that would be I think an example of quackery where you're recommending against mm-hmm. conventional therapies and it's potentially harmful. I like to say in my life, <laughs> por qué no los dos? Why not both? Like if something works for you, take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But I think you really do have to be a little bit critical in what you do choose and understanding the implications and the harms with not choosing something. And I, I'm not a doctor yet, but I will say do not put garlic in your vagina. That's a nice PSA, Jasmine. Thank you. For me, it really comes down to the idea of do no harm. If this is helping you and it's not taking Mm -hmm. a toll on your wallet, it's not preventing you from receiving crucial therapy, and it's not polluting the scientific method, then I think go for it. That's where I think patients can really take control of their illness is by working with their physician to understand their disease and then understand the treatments at stake and through informed consent, come to a decision with their doctor. That partnership prevents that issue of patients feeling alienated and feeling like there is no place for them in modern medicine. So I think that's where we have to bring in those patients, not alienate them, not alienate our colleagues who practice more Um, alternative type therapies, but really work 
to continue to expose the truth and be open to other ideas. It's really tough for us sometimes to do that. And I think if we bring people in through understanding and acceptance, we're able to be more successful in applying those treatments that we do find effective through research. So for those of you who are reading along with us, our next book is going to be The Blue Man and Other Stories of Skin by Dr. Robert Norman. This should be a good one. It goes into not only skin conditions, but the social context behind skin. Yeah, it's a really quick read, and we'll get to talk about blue people, though. Stay tuned. And of course, don't forget to follow us at social at bkbxpod. And email us if you have any suggestions or questions at bkbxpod at gmail.com.